Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Gwenda tonight. And uh, we are, our topic is James symbolizes charity. We're in a little series right now. Last week we did Peter symbolizes faith. We're talking about Peter, James, and John, who are the three most prominent uh, apostles. And uh, so we'll be looking at the Apostle James tonight and what he means and the stories associated with them. Uh, one of the interesting things about James is that he's always with other people. There's only one story about him that involves him alone. And that's a very sad story of his death. He dies alone, but he's always with others while he's alive. So we'll look at how that relates to charity and what we can learn from that. Will you join me, good friends, in an opening prayer? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for bringing us together in your name. You are the Word made flesh. We pray for your presence among us as we seek to understand you, to find you, Lord, in the pages of your Word. Amen. So nice to be with you, friends. Sending out love to those of you online and getting the audio and our good friends up there in Canada on the phone. Uh, great pleasure to be with you. So, James. Swedenborg has this very interesting idea about Scripture that even the people, even though they were real historical characters, also have symbolic meanings. And if we understand their symbolic meanings, it's helpful to understand why some of the stories go the way that they go. The first thing I want to look at here is three specific stories about James in which he and Peter and John are pulled apart from the rest of the Twelve. Even though the Twelve were all selected by the Lord, Peter, James, and John are several times sort of extracted and subjected to some unique experience that the others don't have. Now, it seems like favoritism, or you know, what was it about those three? Uh, um, so let's have a look at that and contemplate that briefly. If you go to Matthew in the New Testament, uh, to chapter 17. The first story we'll read is about the transfiguration. We're not going to read the whole thing, but just the opening part so that you see this. So right in the first verse of Matthew 17. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. That's right. So isn't that interesting that, that the Lord would take Peter, James, and John, and it specifies that John is the brother of James. We'll be talking about John next time, find out more about what he means. Um, we'll probably end up discussing it tonight as well. Uh, but uh, here's Peter, James, and John. They go up to a high mountain. The other nine don't, don't, aren't invited, apparently. And Peter, James, and John are allowed to see this amazing thing of the Lord being transfigured, his face shining like the sun, and so on. Moses and Elijah appear and talk with him and so on. Uh, so they're, they're exposed to this amazing experience that the other disciples don't get. Let's look at another such example. If you turn to Mark, just to the right of Matthew there. Let's go to chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, and we're looking for 
37. Um, we're, we're in the midst of a story where this young woman had uh, died. Let's start at verse 35. Mark 5, verse 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Mm. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now, again, John is called the brother. It's interesting that how often John... It, James and John were brothers, uh, but it's interesting that the text specifies that, you know, goes out of its way to say that uh, John and James are brothers, which has to do with their meaning. And he's, he permitted no one else. It's very explicit there. He permitted no one else to come. When he's uh, raising this daughter from the dead, uh, they're the only three who are allowed in there to see. It doesn't bring all the 12, just those three. Why would that be? And look at Mark chapter 14 at the crucifixion when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, look at verse 32. Let's start there. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Yeah, so he took all the disciples and said, sit here and pray. But then he takes three of them, again, just, just three out of the 12, and takes them farther along with him. And then he prays and he wants the hour to pass. And then isn't it interesting in verse 37, as we read last time, when he comes back and sees them sleeping, what do, who does he talk to? Simon, are you sleeping? Yeah, right. He just speaks to Peter and says, Simon, are you sleeping? There's three of them who are sleeping, but he only speaks to Peter. Now, that, I would submit, has to do with Peter's meaning, which is that Peter has to do with faith or the intellect. So the Lord is able to speak to Peter in, in, in a different way or something. He, he speaks to Peter. That, at least that's why, how I understand that story. And so, again, Peter, James, and John are in a particular uh, relationship to Jesus. So... What Swedenborg says about this, to cut to the chase, let me I'll draw some things on the board here. On the left, we'll have Peter. And we heard last time that Peter means faith. Oh, and I should talk a little bit about how Swedenborg defines faith, because that's interesting too. Uh, and then James, and the reason they always come, or almost always come in the same order, is because of their meaning that James means what what Swedenborg often refers to as charity uh, charity could also be referred to as goodwill it's a uh, it's actually a state of the heart it's a condition of the heart so Peter is a condition of the mind I'll write the mind over here on the left I'm writing all the mind and faith and Peter words in blue, for those of you getting the audio, and then James, charity or goodwill in the heart. Uh, that's what he has to do with. And then uh, to get to what we'll be talking about next time, John means good works. 
and Swedenborg describes these three things as the essentials of salvation. Now that's bold because generally Christianity in his time period, certainly Protestantism, was thinking that only one of those is essential for salvation. That's faith. Uh, Charity's nice, have, you know, having a warm heart toward the human race and, and doing good works will be a sign of your faith, but they contribute absolutely nothing to your salvation. That's what was believed. They contribute nothing. Uh, just faith is what's necessary for salvation. Um, uh, and we've talked a lot about that in this Bible study before. There are certain arguments in favor of that, and there's a lot of scriptures that speak against that very specifically. Uh, Faith, charity, and good works are what Swedenborg says. You need all three of those. Yes, you need to have faith. You need to believe. But we also need to be uh, warm-hearted toward others. We need to have love in our hearts. This is love of the neighbor in our hearts. And we need to be doing something about it. Those three things are necessary. If you have one or two of those without, without the others, uh, you don't have a quorum. And that's why... Uh, Jesus takes these three apart so often is that they mean these core things. The other disciples mean things that are extensions of that, you know, uh, but not as crucial. And that's why these three get separated out and taken up on the mountain. I'm very moved by the, the statement that struck me today that um, when Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying on the eve of the crucifixion, isn't that a great meaning to think that even when he was very severely troubled and facing a, a horrible sort of torturous event, the meaning of his taking Peter, James, and John with him is that he took faith with him. He didn't leave him behind. He took charity with him, love of other people, and he took good works with him. He didn't leave, you know, don't we have a tendency, I certainly know in, in myself, you, you know, you can be nice as long as you're reasonably well-fed, you've slept enough, and, you know, you meet certain requirements, then I can be quite pleasant, you know, to be with. Uh, but that stuff goes out the window, you know, if, you know, if I'm cranky, I haven't had enough to eat, or got a bad sleep, or I'm sick, or, or whatever it is. It's powerful to me that the Lord did not abandon those three at that time. You know, he took them with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, uh, this is what these people mean, but it's also interesting the way Swedenborg explains it, that just because you mean something doesn't mean you always embody that quality. Uh, there's only two stories, I think, uh, or maybe it's just one story that's repeated in different Gospels but uh, are we still in Mark here? We're in Mark, right? Let's turn back to chapter 10. Uh, there's only a couple of stories where James ever says anything. And every time he says something, it's something colossally stupid. It's just interesting. Uh, so in Mark chapter 10, let's look at verse 35. He does it with someone else. Give him that, you know. Let's look at 10.35 and read down from there. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Wow. Okay. Whatever, whatever we ask. We want you to do. We, we 
we want a favor and we want you to absolutely promise to do it without even knowing what it is. Sort of childish right there, isn't it? Okay, go on. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Aha, uh -huh. and here's their important request. They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Oh, they want to sit beside him in his glory. Now, it's very interesting the way Swedenborg explains this because in all the stories where Peter, James, and John go off to do th something, Swedenborg explains them in this way that they mean faith and charity and good works. But in this story, Swedenborg doesn't bring up that meaning. He just, he uses this story a number of times to show that even though these apostles, even though leading apostles like James and John, who've been with the Lord the whole time, listening to them every day, they totally don't get what the nature of his kingdom is that he's been talking about. You know, it would be like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an analogy, but if you, if you were talking to some child about, you know, you know one day you're gonna get on the bus of your education and that'll carry you through to graduation, you know? And then you keep referring it to the bus of your education. You know, you're gonna get on that bus and go through your education. And then, uh, uh, but you try to explain, look, it's not a literal bus, you know? I'm just talking about the fact that you will go through your education, you'll be taken along from one grade to another and so on. And uh, then after years and years of this, they say, well, which side is the steering wheel on? Or something you know, it's like, no, you totally don't get what I'm talking about. You know, that's how bad it is, what they say right here. Like, oh no, you just don't get it at all. You know, they're still thinking it's going to be a worldly kingdom. It's all about me. I'm going to sit right next to Jesus. Hey, can we, you know, we, we have a special favor we want to ask you. And so how does Jesus respond? But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Now that's wonderful. <laughs> and part of what we're looking at here is just because you symbolize something doesn't mean you already embody that quality. Mm -hmm. You know, you, the Lord brings us along and we grow into these qualities. So people may stand for something before they're entirely embodying that quality. So the Lord is using this as a teaching moment uh, and he carefully points out, you don't know what you're asking, you know, you don't know what you're talking about when you, when you ask that. And then listen to this question, I just love this. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And what do they say? And they said to him, we can. Yes, we can. <laughs> you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, the Lord is still talking in correspondences about drinking a cup and being baptized with a <laughs> baptism. And they have no idea what he's talking about, but they're absolutely certain of the answer. It reminds me of a, of a you know, like a one and a half year old or something. I remember asking a daughter of mine at some point, um, do you like yogurt? No, you know, well, you've never had it in your life. And that's the first time you ever heard that word. How do you have a strong opinion about whether you like that or not? You know, uh, so they, they know for sure. They don't know what he's talking about, but they absolutely know that they can. And so what does he say? And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Yes. Now, there are 10 other disciples, if I do my math right. How did they feel about this? 
And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Because <laughs> they're in the same mindset that we're all trying to get ahead here or something. And James and John got the jump on them by asking for to ride shotgun or whatever the effect is. So um, go on. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Mm. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Mm. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Yes, uh, that's just a, a wonderful little story. So, so here's uh, the speaking part that James has. He, he does it with his brother John. Um, but what they say just betrays that they really are clueless about what this kingdom, they're all excited, you know, about the kingdom of God, but they think they know what it is and it has something to do with worldly power and, and, and um, they don't understand. So the Lord uses it as a teaching moment to say, oh, this is about service. You know, this is what we're talking about. Am I here to sort of lord it over everybody? That's not what I'm doing here. Uh, and I think they do learn from him about that. Uh, let's look at Mark chapter 13, verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Yes, Jesus had just said something about there won't be one stone on another of the temple. You know, it's all going to be torn down. And so uh, they're still kind of taking it a little literally there. There's four of them speaking. James is never in isolation in any of these stories. Uh, now, okay, let's go back to the left to Matthew 20. There's a slightly different account in Matthew 20. Uh, this is a parallel story to the one we just read a little bit ago, uh, but look at how it reads in 20, verse 20, 2020. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons. Okay, that's James and John. They were the sons of Zebedee. Kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. It's curious that the same story in another gospel, it's not them asking for themselves, it's the mother asking for them, which makes it slightly better, I guess. There, there's still a, a misunderstanding there, uh, but it's interesting that that's the mother that time. Uh, turn to the right and go to Luke uh, chapter 9. There's an interesting story here, too, where they... The only time that James ever says anything. Um, look at 9. It's pretty late toward the end. Let's start at verse 51. So he's up. The, Jesus is up in the north. And Jerusalem is down in the south. South, southeast kind of thing. And so he's getting ready to travel down there. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Now Samaria was a place 
where they taken the Jews out, replaced them with other people, you know, centuries before. And you remember this idea, do you not, friends, of that the Samaritans were something of an abomination uh, to the Israelites. They were sort of profane and they didn't, you know, they didn't worship in the right way and so on. And so he has to cross through Samaria to get from the north to the south. He's got to go right through the middle of the country, which is Samaria. And so he, he sent messengers in front of him to say, can I stay there? You know, he's coming with his disciples and so on. Can I stay there? Okay, how do they react? But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Yeah, so somehow, isn't that interesting that they sort of knew that he's just passing through. Mm. It's very reminiscent of when the children of Israel tried to go through Moab and they wouldn't let them through, you know, similar kind of thing. And so James and John had a certain reaction to this. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Yes, there was a story about Elijah <laughs> bringing down fire from heaven and burning up 50 soldiers. And they sent another 50 soldiers and he sent down fire and burned up the other 50. And then they sent another 50 and they came and they said, please don't burn us up. We're just trying to get you to come with us. So he finally agrees to come. So isn't it interesting that James and John when they won't receive him in Samaria, James and John, their instinct is, oh, flame on, you know, this is, this is time for fire from heaven. That's what, that's what would, you know, appropriate in this situation. Do you want us to call? And isn't it amazing? They've got the self-confidence that they believe that that would happen. You know, if they called that down, that fire would come down and, and consume them. And so Jesus thought that was wonderfully supportive. Is that how he reacted? But he turned and rebuked them and oh. said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. That's a great phrase, isn't it? <laughs> Where are you coming from? And that sort of let's burn the whole city you know, with fire out of heaven. Where, where are you coming from? You know, you, you don't know. Again, isn't it interesting? He doesn't say you're evil or something. He just says you don't know. Again, interesting. You don't know what you're talking about basically, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know what, what spirit, you, you're not aware of the spirit that you're coming from in saying that. And then he goes on. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And I love the little tagline at the end of the verse. And they went to another village. Yeah, they went to another village. Yeah. Shall we burn them to the ground? Oh, no, we'll just go to another place. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's just, it's just wonderful. So the Lord, again, he's very patient. He keeps using these as teaching moments to just say, hey, I'm not here to kill people. That's, that's, what I'm, I'm not, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm here to save people. We're not about calling down fire from heaven and everything. So those are, to the best of my knowledge, James's three speaking parts in Scripture, and he's really dumb every time. Um, you know, doesn't get something about the kingdom of God, uh, says something foolish and has to be corrected or rebuked or you know, taught something. Um, so that's, that's interesting. Now, turn to the right and go almost back to the book of Revelation after Hebrews. If you get to the Hebrews, immediately after Hebrews, you get the epistle of James. I want to talk about this a little bit. Mm, the epistle of James. Now, here's the deal, good friends. I have to talk a little bit about this. Um, there are five people in the New Testament named James. 
Three of them are pretty much bit players. One of them is another one of those 12 apostles who was left behind when the other James went up the mountain and so on. James, the son of Alphaeus, I think is his name. And uh, one of the Jameses is the brother of Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus had a brother named James. He had a brother named Simon, I believe. He had a brother named Jude, which, which is the same as Judas. It's just interesting that his brothers had sort of overlapping names with some of these other characters in Scripture. Um, now, James, the brother of Jesus... In the book of Acts, you see Peter's very prominent among the disciples early in Acts. But then James, the brother of Jesus, takes over later, and he becomes the lead uh, you know, person in Christianity in Jerusalem. And he's quite a stickler for, for rules. He, he comes up with a new approach to the dietary laws and stuff like that. He's an interesting character. Uh, so the question is, this is the epistle of James. Which James wrote the epistle of James? Is it the apostle James, one of the 12, or is it Jesus's brother? And scholars have, are divided about this and there's arguments for one and there's arguments for another and so on. Uh, we'll, we'll learn in a little bit uh, that James, the Apostle James died somewhere around or shortly before 44 AD, uh, whereas the, the brother of Jesus lived to be 62, and so people try by the dating to figure out when was this letter written and what was going on, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Swedenborg, and I don't mean to say that he's absolutely right about this necessarily. Often he just has to work from whatever the perspective is of his time or whatever the knowledge is that's available then. They might not have known that this was an issue or they might not have had ways of dating these things back then. Uh, but he is crystal clear, like his opinion is, oh, that's the Apostle James. You know, the Apostle James, Peter, James, and John. You got the Epistles of Peter, you got the Epistles of John, you got the Epistle of James. That's, this is the James that we're talking about tonight that writes this. And I think one tiny little argument that's maybe a silly argument, but look at that first verse in James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, he doesn't say of my brother Jesus Christ. He says of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure that Jesus, Jesus's brother James probably also referred to him as the Lord. It's interesting too that the only place in scripture I believe that the phrase servant of the Lord Jesus Christ appears is right here in James mm -hmm. uh, chapter one, verse one. And that's how Swedenborg labels himself on the title page of true Christianity. Um, uh, that's just one argument, but I also wanna argue from the substance of the book that the James, the brother of Jesus is sort of a stickler for the rules and you know, uh, almost got sort of a Pharisee feel to him in my mind. Uh, but this other James with the meaning of charity, I just think that's more of the meaning and, and the spirit behind what being said. So my heresy, first heresy that I've uttered tonight, might not be the last, is that uh, this epistle of James was written by the Apostle James and that it tells us something about the nature of charity and that if it is the Apostle James, then we've seen him go through something of a shift like Peter did. You know, last week we talked about how Peter started out as just hearing, but he becomes the rock. 
And it took him quite a long time, an intense journey to, to get that way. Well, James, we only see those through few things where he indicates that he doesn't understand what's going on. Uh, but he really sounds, whoever this is in this epistle, sounds like he knows uh, what's going on. Uh, let's uh, read something here. Let's pick up at the verse 17 in this first chapter. We'll read some of epistle of James. It's really wonderful. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, mm. that we might be ki a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Aha. Uh -huh. Go on. Therefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Isn't that good advice? Mm -hmm. You hear that? That's good, huh? Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why should you be slow to wrath? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Just seems like it should. You know, when you're really getting a good righteous anger, indignation going on, you know, shouldn't that produce the righteousness of God or something? Apparently it doesn't. Such a shame. Um, yes, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's a great little piece of clarity. Uh, go on. <clears throat> Verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Uh-huh. Now, you see what he's talking about? He's talking about how you would take the truth and deploy it in your life, right? That we need to repent. And then look at what he's very careful to say in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Yes. <laughs> oh, I probably look fine. <laughs> I just love that. I just love that. Go on. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. A doer of this work. This one will be blessed in what he does. Mm. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Oh, wow. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Yes. Now, you see... The idea is that faith uh, teaches that we should be charitable, that we should love. And then charity comes down into these good works. As I read that passage right there, that seems to me all about repentance and how that word, the engrafted word in verse 21, uh, and the word of truth that was mentioned back in verse 18, how does that come into action? You have to do the word and not, not just be hearers of it, you know? And he talks about our self-examination. You've got to deploy these teachings in your life. And, uh, and visiting the fatherless and widows, you know, what has been more identified with the word charity? I want to say a little bit more about charity that, um, as I said before, it's, it's often been taken to mean 
helping and particularly helping somebody who's disadvantaged compared to you, that's a, that's a wonderful thing, you know, giving, giving money or helping out and volunteering in, in various different ways. But what Swedenborg means by charity is uh, this feeling of love and goodwill, positive regard, which can be a feeling that you have towards people who are more powerful than you or entire nations of people or whatever. It's a condition of your heart. It then comes down into good works, but the pure thing itself of charity is a condition of your heart. And to me, what James is talking about here is how you take the truth and bring it out into your life. It's this thing that wants to connect the faith into the good works, which is the charity that stands between them. That's the way I read it. Uh, let's look at chapter 2, verse 8 there. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Love of the neighbor is what charity is all about. And he calls this, I don't think anywhere else in scripture is it referred to as a royal law, but he refers to it as a royal law. So I just think that's intriguing. If you think of James as meaning charity, uh, that's intriguing to have there. Uh, he gets into this great riff about, uh, you know, if you break one commandment, you've bro broken them all and that kind of thing. Uh, let's pick up at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? This is the $24 billion question. <laughs> you know, can faith save you? Uh, what is the profit if you say you have faith but you don't have works. Now, isn't it interesting to think of charity talking to us about faith and works, how these two things relate to each other. Go on. Let's give an example here. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, <laughs> what does it profit? Now, you see what that is? That's, that's talking the talk, but not walking the walk, isn't it? I just love that. I think that's the greatest thing to just say, you know, so someone comes to you and they're naked and they're starving and you say, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, you know, as if you're saying that will somehow fill their belly and make them all warm, and, you know, and you don't do anything for them. You know, what does it profit? Go on. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Yes, you have. Okay, well, you have faith. I have work. I'm, I'm more work-oriented. You're more faith-oriented. It's all good. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. By, yes, by, yes. Right. You, you show me what your faith looks like without works. I'll be very interested to see that. Probably won't be impressive. Uh, I plan to show you my faith by my works. That, that's how I'll show you. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. <laughs> <laughs> what a lie. In a, in a discussion about faith. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people in hell have faith. The demons believe and tremble, you know. Didn't help them. Didn't save them. The faith is not going to do it by itself. Uh, and he goes on, you know, wasn't Abraham, uh, you know, faith without works is, is dead, he says in verse 20. Wasn't Abraham justified by works? Um, oh, let's keep going through that. It's so great. So we're at 21? Uh, pick up at 22 or something like that. Okay. 
Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Isn't that an interesting statement? Like you may have faith, but if you're not practicing it, your faith is not being perfected. Because what perfects your faith is doing it. Go on. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Mm. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Yes, and faith only or faith alone there is the only mention of faith alone in scripture, which is that it has a not right before it, you know, not by faith alone or not by faith only. Uh, we are justified by our works. It's amazing. Go on. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And then listen to this. This is very profound to me. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, wait a minute. Okay, so the body without the spirit is dead. Okay, I get that. If, if somebody's died and their spirits left their body, then the body is dead. So which part of the next equation equals the body? Faith is actually the body. Mm -hmm. And works is the spirit. Wow, it's the wrong way around, isn't it? Wouldn't faith be in your spirit and works be in your body? Isn't that something your body does? What's he doing? Why is it the, the wrong way around? It's amazing. But this is, this is profound uh, to me that that faith is actually something that is brought to life by having works inside it. You know, the works perfect the faith. This is a direct uh, kind of rebuttal, it seems, is certainly the way a lot of people have read it, to uh, Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And he's saying, no, you do have to, you do have to do it. This was so controversial. Uh, Luther uh, wanted to get rid of the Epistle of James. When he was translating the Bible, Martin Luther, the reformer, wanted to get rid of James. He put it in the, and he wanted to get rid of the book of Revelation. And I think he didn't like the Hebrews as well. There were three or four books that he didn't like. And he uh, put them after all the rest of the stuff. He put them at the back as if they were like a sort of an appendix, like apocryphal works that you shouldn't really pay attention to. They really didn't, and there was a number of people back then, really didn't like James because James taught works. It's so clearly taught in there. So I think it's very interesting the idea, any idea that James corresponds to charity is charity saying, hey, this alone is not going to do it. Faith alone is not very expressly says faith alone is not going to do it. You got to be doing, you got to be living by this to have any meaning. Let's go to chapter three, verse 13. We're just picking here and there. It'd be great to read the whole thing. Let's read 13 down to 18 there. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, isn't that awesome? Like, okay, you've got knowledge. You've got understanding. That's really great. Reputation for being wise. Tell you what, why don't you show me how wise you are by doing something, hmm. you know, do something useful. And what's the contrast with that, dear reader? But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, oh. do not boast and lie against the truth. Oh. 
This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Wow. Mm. Okay, so there's two different kinds of wisdom you're saying, and one kind comes down from above, and the other kind comes up from hell. The devils believe and tremble. Uh, another kind comes up from hell, uh, but it's earthly and sensual and demonic. Is that what mm. you just mm -hmm. articulated? Yep. Interesting. Huh. Okay, so wisdom that's not deployed in good works actually comes from hell and is, it has a demonic aspect to it. Amazing. Go on. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. Yes, in the Old King James, every evil work. You know, it's very specific about what you're doing. Go on. But the wisdom that is from above... Oh, good. We get to hear about the wisdom that's from above. What's that like? Is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. Good what? Without good fruits. Oh, good. Oh, it's good, good fruits? fruits? Mm -hmm. That's important? Okay, good fruits. Go mm -hmm. on. Without partiality and without hypocrisy. Mm. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Mm. What a beautiful phrase. Isn't this a great epistle? Mm -hmm. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You, you have to make peace. Like we all believe in peace, but how many people actually create it? You know, you've, you've got to make it. You've got to do something to create a peace. Then right after that, he goes into this amazing thing about where war comes from. That's about peace. Let's read a few verses about war. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Oh. You lust and do not have. That's true. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Mm. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Okay, all right. You ask and you do not receive. This is not going well. Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Wow. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Mm. Or do you... And look at verse 7. Let's just skip down mm -hmm. there in the interest of time. But Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Very important rule. Swedenborg, what does he call this? He's got some phrase for it. This is a fixed and immutable law that the closer we come to God, the closer he comes to us. And there it's most clearly articulated. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. That's right. And how do we do that? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, oh. and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Oh, you got to cleanse both your hands and your heart. <laughs> and we're sinners and double-minded. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, look down. Let's see. Oh, let's just look at verse 17 down the end of the chapter there. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Isn't he still talking about the relationship between knowledge and action? Knowledge just does nothing unless you deploy it in your life. So I'm fascinated with this thought that James means charity. And this is an epistle about charity talking about how faith has to come into works. Uh, look at chapter 5. Let's just skip to verse 8 there. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I think that's meaningful, too. To establish your hearts. 
Charity is a condition of the heart. That's what we're talking about. It's all about the condition of the heart and how that relates to what you know and how that relates to how you live. So establish your hearts. I, I like that phrase there. Oh, let's skip down to 14. There's just beautiful stuff all through him. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Does that sound like charity? Does that sound like being kind to people if somebody's sick? In the previous verse it said, is, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. If, if, if you're happy, sing psalms. If you're sick, call for the elders. Let's pray over them. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Go on. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Mm. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Does that have anything to do with charity? Is it mm. like a positive regard, mm. a goodwill, a good-heartedness toward other humans? Uh, even if they've done bad things, you're like, well, you're saying, well, I, I did this bad thing and so on. And I like the end of that verse. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Yes, and certainly a woman too. The effect, fervent prayer of a righteous person is of great avail. Good, good. All right, now, uh, ready for something sad? Yeah. Good. Let's go back to the Gospels, and then you turn to the right and you get Acts. Let's go to the death of James. This is the only story that I could find in which James is ever mentioned alone. The only time he's ever all by himself in a verse of Scripture. Uh, and look who else is writing this story with him. Incredible. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Mm. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Okay. Hey, it's our old buddy Herod. Now this is the grandson of the Herod. I think he's called Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of, of the, you know, we had a couple of famous Herods before. Uh, but we've still got a Herod. And he's still active and he wants to harass the church. So what did he do? In one brief verse, what does he do? Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, even in his death, he's still being called the, you know, the James is the brother of John. He's still got something to do with John, John meaning these good works. And look at that. He killed him with the sword. Herod killed James with a sword. Um, uh, Swedenborg doesn't comment on this verse, as far as I could tell. But the sword means bad teachings. It means falsity. It's the opposite of truth. You know, some swords in scripture mean truth. Some mean uh, bad teachings. They mean falsity. And so a sword that kills James. So Herod is the love of self. Not too hard to figure that out. Love of self not meaning, oh, I'll have a nice uh, bath with some Epsom salts. Uh, I've had a rough day. Uh, love of self means I'm the king of the castle and everybody else on the planet is the dirty rascal. You know, that's what, that's what the love of self is. And Herod is very much that way and he's trying to get in good 
with the Jewish population in an interesting way. You remember he was fascinated with Jesus, wanted him to do a miracle, all upset that he wouldn't do it and so on. I may, may be mixing up my different Herods. But um, the, I believe that was the same one as this one here. Uh, so Herod, like self-centeredness, right? The embodiment of, of extreme self-centeredness kills charity with bad teachings. Gosh, I never heard of that ever happening. Really? That bad teachings take away, look at what's happened to Christianity. The idea that charity has any relationship to salvation has been killed, right? It's been done away with, quickly, boom. And what's amazing about this, as you look down in the story, nobody grieves, there's no burial, Nothing's ever said about it. He just disappears off the face of the earth. One stroke of Herod's sword and he's just gone and nobody even says anything about it. He's not even mourned. It's just, there's no regret. There's no mention of people gathering or weeping or doing it. You know, nothing. Just, psh, oh, you know, he's just gone. Now, what happens in the story? Go on. Let's see. Verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews. Now, see, that was wonderful. The only reaction you hear about is that this non-Christian population was really thrilled that James was killed. Yay! He proceeded okay. further to seize Peter also. Okay, so he thought, hey, I'm making, you know, scoring points here with the local population. So I'll go grab Peter, too. And so he grabbed Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Mm -hmm. So when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Yes, okay, so at the end of Passover, he was going to bring, didn't want to disrupt the religious festival. He'll be, you know, uh, courteous and bring Peter out at the end of that and kill him at the end of that time. So Peter's kept in prison. People are praying for him. Uh, Peter is literally sleeping between two soldiers in verse 6, bound with, you know, they're strapped to him with chains. Uh, he's in there. Then the angel of the Lord comes to him in verse 7, and he gets Peter up and he says, Get up quickly, and the chains fall off his hands. And the angel says, Gird yourself and put your sandals on and, and get your garment on and follow me. And he goes walking out, and he hardly believes in verse 9 that he's really experiencing life as it is. Uh, he thought it was just a vision or something like that. But they keep going past the guards, the first set, the second set. They get out to the gate. Uh, then Peter realizes, oh, wait a minute, this is real. The Lord actually sent his angel and delivered me from the hand of Herod and all that. And so he comes to the house of Mary, the mother of John. A bunch of people are gathered there praying. And he knocks on the door. And this uh, young woman recognizes his voice. And she's so happy about it that she doesn't open the door and leaves him out there. And so, uh, and she kept saying, no, Peter's here. No, really, he really is here. And they said, oh, it's just his angel or something. But no, and Peter's out there knocking like, hello, uh, just escaped from prison. Would like to come in if I could. Could be guards coming. Might be dangerous. How, you know. And so finally, they, this sort of this comedic scene. And he goes in there. Now, interesting in, in, to me in verse 17, that he says, go show these things to James. That's the other James. Like the, the first James just got killed in verse 2. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He's right there in the same story. Uh, and so there's no small stir among the soldiers. And, and Herod puts some of them to death and, and all that good stuff. 
Okay, so you see what happened here? In one very brief verse, the briefest verse in this chapter, as far as I can see, James gets killed with the sword by Herod. And then there's this long, long story about Peter. Peter's in prison, and Peter gets out, and the angel lets him out. Wow, the angel protected Peter. Didn't really do a great job with James there, but uh, Peter got protected. You know, the whole long story about, oh, Peter, he got protected with the angel. There's this comedic little thing, hey, let me in. And he doesn't come in and say, hey, it's too bad about James. Or anything. You know, not a word about it. Nothing about James getting killed. They're just all Peter, 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 Peter. Everything's about Peter, you know, and this sort of happy story. But, oh, it's so great. Peter got out. Nothing about James. Interesting story, huh? Now, what this reminded me of, let's go back to uh, Genesis chapter 4 in the very left of your Bibles. It's not exactly the same story, but the story of Cain and Abel. Now, these are two brothers. And Abel, in verse 2, you see there's a keeper of the sheep, but Cain is a tiller of the ground. And Cain brings an offering to the Lord, and Abel brings an offering. And the Lord was happy with Abel's offering, but not as pleased with Cain's. And Cain was very upset. And the Lord says in verse 7, if you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin lies at the door. And so Cain goes out and talks with his brother in verse 8. And Cain rose up against his brother and slew him. This is different than Peter and James. Peter had nothing to do with James's death. Uh, but Cain actually slew Abel. And then... The Lord says, where's Abel? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And, and the Lord this time does make more of a fuss about it. It says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And uh, then the Lord pronounces a kind of a curse. Then Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You've driven me this day and all this. And so the Lord takes all this careful, look at verse 15, where he carefully puts a mark on Cain to prevent him from being killed. Even though he just killed Abel, and Abel died and it moves on and Cain lives and he goes on and he reproduces and he, he's protected. It just re reminded me of like, there's this protection for Peter. Peter, 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 he's protected. An angel protects him, comes out of prison and everything. Everybody's rejoicing. James is just, you know, just, just killed. And that, that's the end of it. So uh, what I think this means, good friends, is that when bad teachings rise up, they kill charity. Now, once charity is killed, it would seem like a very unfair story. Like, why would it be so tilted or something? But once, once charity is killed, Abel also means charity. Cain means faith, says Swedenborg. So it's a very similar story in terms of the inner meaning. And once Abel is killed, you have to put a mark on faith, uh, on Cain, because if you lose faith, you've lost everything. So you've got to have something. And so I think the reason that's like James is just killed lightning fast and nothing said about it. And then there's this all this fuss about rescuing Peter is because once charity is dead, it's of the utmost importance to keep faith going because faith is what could lead you eventually to charity, you know, bring charity back in some way, bring good works back. So I think this is a picture of what's happened in Christianity. I think this story was prophetic and why it's in there and why it's so shocking, why it's so sad that he's killed and nobody, as far as you can tell from the story, nobody sheds a tear, nobody cares. You know, this thing was killed 
and nobody sheds a tear. That's what I see in that story. It doesn't literally say that, but um, the only thing that happens is that some people are happy, like, oh, great, we got rid of that thing that was in the way, that annoying charity thing, you know? Now, we, now, now things are, are way better. So um, I think this story is about what happens, what has happened to charity over time. And when charity gets killed, it like, it dies without a whimper, like nobody even kind of realizes it's gone. You know, and everything is all oh, it's no faith. Faith is very important. Well, thank God the faith got out of prison. And the angel had to protect faith and good. Heaven. Thank you. We're so happy about the faith. Peter, 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 Peter. Peter is the faith. James is the charity. And I think it's a prediction that in the course of Christianity version 1.0, charity was going to get killed pretty early on. Uh, but faith would live on faith would be rescued and would be kept alive because without that the whole game's over you know you got to have something at least but it's not enough to save you by itself and let me uh, as we start to wind down here friends just talk a little bit about Swedenborg's relationship um, it's very interesting that uh, Swedenborg says in one of the earliest, earliest paragraphs. It's like paragraph number three of the word explained, if you know what that is. That was a precursor that was never published to Arcana Celestia or Secrets of Heaven. Very, very early on in that number, he talks about uh, when his spiritual eyes were opened. His, his great claim, as you probably know, good friends, is that he, uh, the, the eyes of his spirit were opened so that he was able to be in heaven. And in this world, he could see people who had passed on. I see dead people, you know. Uh, he could see people in the spiritual world and see people in this world at the same time. And that's what his books were all about. That's what he was reporting. And some of the first people he saw up there were the apostles and some of the patriarchs. He talked about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He mentions Rebecca, seeing Rebecca. And he says that he had seen the apostles and he said especially, he mentioned two apostles, James and Paul. Very interesting. James and Paul, he'd spend the most, now this was just eight months after his spiritual eyes were open, but he said he'd spend a lot of time with James. Now it's very interesting. Like if I think you were making it up and you were trying to win glory for yourself, you wouldn't start with James. I mean, James is sort of like, <laughs> he's the middle child. You know, you got this exciting Peter and this exciting John and whatever. Like when you're really, is it gonna be James? But that's who he spent a lot of time with. And he talks a lot about James. He talks about James's epistle. He says in True Christianity number 154 that the Lord filled the apostles with his Holy Spirit and they all wrote in different ways. Uh, Peter in one way, James in another, John in another, Paul in another. Uh, he, he, he expressly says that they were inspired and the Lord filled them with the, his Holy Spirit and they all wrote in different ways. Uh, and toward the end of his theological works, he quotes from James a lot. And he has this wonderful, memorable relation. Uh, these are these memorable occurrences or these narrative accounts of, of his experiences in the spiritual world. And uh, there are these faith alone preachers. And I don't even remember what somebody said. I should have gone and read the story again. You can, you can look it up if you have access. Go to New Christian Bible Study and, and look it up. But um, the, uh, there's this faith alone preacher and somebody mentions something about James the epistle of James. And at the very end of this whole occurrence, 
there's this faith alone preacher who's just furious. And what he says is, that James, that James. You know, he's, he's furious at James. That same sort of spirit of Luther, like, get this out of the Bible, you know. Talk about trying to kill James, you know, literally trying to cut that epistle right off. Get it out of the Bible because it pre preaches works so powerfully. And trying to get rid of the book of Revelation for the same reason. Blessed are those who do his commandments. They'll have the right to the tree of life and all that. Uh, so interesting. So, um, first of all, one takeaway lesson to me from this evening is that I think it must be true of us too, that the Lord has things in mind with us and we can stand for something before we embody that thing. The Lord wants to bring us along. Like we may be still saying stupid things, uh, <laughs> as I do every week in Bible study, as you know, good friend. And, uh, but the Lord is working with us, you know, that you can stand for something before you embody that quality. But the Lord is working with us to try to, try to bring us along. And I'm very intrigued that every story of James, he's with other people. I think that's because that's what he means. He means love of the neighbor. He means good heartedness. He's always, and it's always mentioned about his brother, his brother, his brother. He, he's always with other people. Even when he's speaking, he speaks with someone else. If both of them speak or something, you know, James and John or who, who are the four disciples come to the Lord and ask him how the end is going to be and all that. Uh, he's always with somebody else, but he dies alone. And the only response is that his enemies rejoice because he's gone. And I think that has to do with what the, the, that great risk of losing, losing charity in, in the church. Uh, and that's why Peter is so carefully protected. And I think that love and goodwill toward others goes that same way that it just sort of can kind of quickly get snuffed out and society gets cold hearted or, or whatever. You know, it can turn quickly and people don't even miss it. They, they don't even see that it's gone. James is just killed by Herod, by self-centeredness, by ego, by love of self, you know, just and with, with false teachings, with misinterpretation of scripture, with other kind of false teachings, just like, we don't need this, just be cold and be ruthless. And, and, uh, and James gets killed in prison like that. So I hope you have a wonderful week. <laughs> Thank you, good friends. Very good to see you. Let's keep James alive, shall we? Let's close with a prayer. There we go. Oh Lord, we pray for that spirit of Peter, that spirit of faith, that recognition that you are the living God. You're the one God of heaven and earth. We pray for that spirit of James, that spirit of charity, a warm heart. This is a quality that you give us, Lord. It's not something we can generate out of our own lower selves. That wisdom is from below. It is sensual and demonic. We pray for something from you, Lord. Give us that spirit of faith, that spirit of charity, and teach us to practice good works so that you may be among us. These are the three qualities that allow us to see you in all your glory on the top of the mountain. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, 
as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting as James told us to do, good friends. God bless.